0: If you tried to describe what God is like, it could be difficult or daunting. But when the people who wrote the Bible pondered the mystery of God, they consistently describe God's character in this way. Compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, overflowing with loyal love and faithfulness. We are going to look at the second key word in this statement, gracious. The Hebrew word is chanun, which is related to the Hebrew noun chen. This word, chen, is often translated as grace or favor. And if you study how this word is used throughout the Bible, you find a fascinating story. One meaning of chen is delightful or favorable. In the Psalms, a skilled poet is said to have lips of chen. That is, he can craft beautiful words that bring delight. Or a dazzling piece of jewelry is an ornament of chen. It attracts attention and favor. This is why chen is often the word used to describe a gift given with delight or favor. In these cases, chen could be translated as grace. Like in the story of Esther who approaches the king of Persia to ask that she and her people be spared from death. She calls this a request for chen. And because the king delights in Esther, he favors her and grants her wish. So, giving a gift of favor is chen because it is motivated by delight. And the most extreme kind of chen is showing favor to someone who should get what they deserve, not a generous gift. Like Jacob, who cheated his brother Esau, ran away, and then after 20 years wants to come back and make things right. So he comes to Esau asking, may I find chen in your eyes? Jacob isn't asking for what is fair, but for favor. And surprisingly, that's what Esau gives him. He chooses to delight in his brother Jacob and show him grace that he does not deserve. Now, chen requires a generous spirit, which people sometimes have. But in the Bible, the one who shows more chen than anyone else is God. Like when God rescued the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, and they quickly betray him by giving their allegiance to a golden idol as their God. But then, Moses steps in and asks God to consider giving a gift that they do not deserve. And God says, yes, by showing the ultimate act of chen, forgiveness and a promise to be with these people. This character trait of God is so reliable that over 40 times in the book of Psalms, people cry out for God's chen when they're sick or in danger or when the Israelites are in exile. And the biblical prophets like Isaiah looked back to God's chen in the past and boldly declared that God will one day show chen to his people by delivering them and all creation from death and ruin. Now, when we turn to the authors of the New Testament, they describe God's chen with the Greek word charis, which means gracious gift. Like when we are introduced to Jesus in the Gospel of John, we are told that Jesus is God's glorious charis become human, sent into a world of people trapped in darkness and death. Because according to the Apostle Paul, we are like the living dead. God has handed humanity over to the destructive consequences of our selfish decisions. But, Paul says, God is rich in mercy, and by his charis, he's rescued us. He's talking about how Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are offered to us as a generous gift of life that is more powerful than death. And, as with any gift, all one has to do is receive it. So, now you can see why the biblical authors talk so much about this description of God's character throughout the Bible. When people are willing to own their failures and ask God for chen, he has a consistent and generous response. God gives the gift of himself, his life, and his love. and This is what it means that God is gracious.
1: Well this morning's song is Amazing Grace, My Chains Are Gone. Um, So it's really in a way two different songs. Uh, John Newton, the sailor uh, and slave trader, um, you probably know the story of the song Amazing Grace, Um, after his long life of a sailor living everything that you would imagine a sailor in that era was like, um, ultimately became a slave trader and then eventually he found God and became an abolitionist and fought to end the slave trade in Great Britain. So he ended up writing hundreds of hymns over his career as well as becoming an evangelist and working to spread the gospel and fight the slave trade. Um, In uh, Somewhere in the mid-2000s or late-2000s, production on a film, Amazing Grace, about William Wilberforce's efforts to abolish the slave trade in the British Empire Um, was in production, and Chris Tomlin was asked if he would write something based on the hymn Amazing Grace to be part of that film's soundtrack or in the credit scene. Um, So he wrote that little chorus and kind of recorded Amazing Grace in a little bit of a different style. Um, So that's really the core of the song that we know. I'm going to go through a few of the verses in Chris Tomlin's version, just look for a uh, a few themes that I see in those stanzas, and then talk about two specific principles that I want us to remember from this hymn. So verse 1, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. In John chapter 1, verses 14 to 17, there are a few verses in here that say this, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And the way that's written, grace upon grace can also be translated grace in place of grace or grace instead of grace, talking about the law and Jesus. So what we see in that scripture selection there is that Jesus is the favor or the kindness or gift that is given to us. His grace replaced the grace of the law. Or, inspired by the way Jesus talked about his relationship with the law, maybe we could say, for from his fullness we have all received grace, fulfilled by grace. And then in Isaiah 29, verse 17 and 18, we hear this, Is it not yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field, and the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest. In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. And then in verse 2, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear, the hour I first believed.'" See so if you can kind of hear that those words in this passage from Exodus 20. often does bring fear of consequences. So the followers in Israel feared lightning and thunder, the smoking mountain, and the trumpeting because they believed it heralded their doom. And rightfully so, compared against God's holiness, they deserved destruction. And just after, they did break a covenant that they had just made with God by building and creating that golden calf and worshiping it. The consequences of those sins and the consequences of sinner itself, were very bitter. They were actually made to drink the powdered remains of that idol. But if they would have had fear of him, then they wouldn't have needed to fear. God is utterly holy and righteous and exacting, but if you fear or revere and respect him, you will learn to know that there's no need to fear anything else. Was the law that taught my heart to fear, and Jesus my fears relieved. How precious did Jesus appear, the hour I first believed. And then the chorus that Chris Tomlin wrote for this song, My chains are gone, I've been set free. My God, my Savior, has ransomed me. And like a flood, His mercy reigns, unending love, amazing grace the world's power structures are often an illusion. Jesus told us he looks at a man's heart, not at his outward appearance. So the reality is that a slave trader, like John Newton, can be the one in chains, despite the appearance of power that he carries in his world. So this refrain carries the subtext that a slave trader ultimately helped set slaves free, but also that he himself needed freedom from sin, and the wicked use of his strength and status. And despite deserving justice and retribution, God chose to pay the ransom for that spiritual slave. God's ways are not our ways, and his thoughts are not our thoughts. What seems to be free may in fact be imprisoned, and what seems to be bound may in fact be free. Acts 12, 7, And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. Then in 2 Timothy 2.9, For which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. This is Paul writing. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Peter was physically shackled but God already had set a plan for him to be freed. Paul was wrongfully imprisoned, but he actually became more bold and free to preach about the way of Jesus. The next verse, the Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. Isaiah 40, verse seven through eight. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And in Psalm 28, 6 through 9, blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield, in him my heart trusts, and I am helped, my heart exalts, and with my song I give thanks to him. God is faithful and true. And this last verse that wasn't written by Newton or Tomlin that was added by editors somewhere in the history of the song, the earth shall soon dissolve like snow, the sun forbear to shine, but God who called me here below will be forever mine, Mm -hmm. will be forever mine, you are forever mine. In this verse, I hear the promise of the world's great unmaking as everything is thrown into the furnace. Isaiah 13, uh, 9 through 11 says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation, and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil, and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp and the air of the arrogant, and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. But God is purposeful and faithful to his original plan. So the world's unmaking is in preparation for its remaking. The sun extinguished will be followed by his sun, even more brilliant. Isaiah 30, 25 through 29 has this promise. And on every lofty mountain and every high hill, there will be brooks running with water in the day of the great slaughter when the towers fall. Moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be sevenfold, as the light of seven days, in the day when the Lord binds up the brokenness of his people and heals the wounds inflicted by his blow. Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with his anger and in thick rising smoke. His lips are full of fury, and his tongue is like a devouring fire. His breath is like an overflowing stream that reaches up to the neck to sift the nations with the sieve of destruction and to place on the jaws of the people a bridle that leads astray. You shall have a song as in the night when a holy feast is kept, and gladness of heart as when one sets out to the sound of the flute to go to the mountain of the Lord to the rock of Israel. There's no need to fear when we fear Him. If God is your portion and your shield, it doesn't matter that the entire cosmos is folding in upon itself in a brilliant flash. Because your faith is in someone who stretches beyond the universe, who in fact sustains it with his unshakable, unfading word. So those are a few of the themes that I saw in those stanzas, but then there are two principal items I want to talk about this morning that I take away from this song. Number one is that God is generous. We read John one sixteen earlier. God repeatedly offered a resolution to humanity after their faithless rejection. And in the Old Testament, he did it by providing a law and a nation that was set apart to keep his relationship with humanity alive. And ultimately, he did it by providing himself as a payment for sin and restoring his presence to his people. John 1.16, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. God is generous when we have no right to receive a gift. And that's exactly what makes it a gift. Romans 3, 23 through 25. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. God is generous. If he paid for our sins while we were still sinners, indeed before we even existed, then what payment does God demand from you now after you've received this gift? Think carefully, because it's a gift that carries no demand. It is a grace. Titus 3, 4-7 through 7. God is truly generous. We are heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This gift carries not just the payment of your debt, but the promise of eternal gifts. Psalm 103, 8 through 11 says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. Mm. The next point I want to share by uh, beginning with a story. I remember when I was a boy, you know, probably before I was a teenager, being at uh, one of my uncle's houses. My, My dad has six brothers, so don't need to give away the identity, <laughs> um, but we were at his house and, and he lived uh, on a shared property with my grandparents. Um, they worked there in the mountains in Perry County, a beautiful place. Um, my dad had recently, he had back surgeries and he'd recently discovered the wonders of the select comfort bed. So you can sleep on a cloud and with the push of a button you can change the firmness or softness of your side of the bed alone. It's quite tremendous. We still get to sleep in one of those and we visit uh, in the guest room at my parents' place. Um, but He was telling my uncle about how great this bed was and telling him how he needs to get one of these right now. And you can call the 800 number. This is before the days of the internet, really. And you can call the 800 number and you can get it and try it for 30 days and they'll take it back if you don't want it. So he got on the phone, I think, on behalf of my uncle. Maybe my uncle ended up with the phone at some point, talking to one of their customer service representatives, getting this set up so that he could send it. But, of course, they wanted to know a few details so that they knew the person they were sending the bed to would ultimately pay for the bed. So they were asking questions for the credit things like, you know, how much is your mortgage? Oh, well, I don't have a mortgage. Well, how much is your rent? Well, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't pay rent. Okay, well, how much, uh, how much do you pay every month in utilities? Oh, well, I, I don't pay those. And uh, t- after finally going through each of these line items, my uncle was just becoming exasperated. So he just kind of yelled in an immortalized line for a family. Um, I live for free. <laughs> this is a way of explaining. Don't worry. <laughs> I'll, I'll take the bed. <laughs> and I'm just thinking about that. It's such a, it's such a great story that I just remember that funny line, it's amusing to me, but it's such a powerful thing to say. I live for free. And I was thinking about this a few weeks ago and realizing that's something we should be saying to ourselves. I live for free. It changes your perspective. It changes the way you plan and think and live and enjoy life. We don't owe any man anything. We don't owe any institution anything. We don't even owe God anything. He's made that very clear. We have a lot of perceptions and a lot of things we've built up and we carry as burdens that don't exist. They're like Peter in the shackles. They may as well have not been there because God had already planned to set him free. You live for free. And that means what you do today and what you do tomorrow it's entirely different because you're not trying to pay off a debt anymore. You're not trying to break free of shackles anymore because you live for free. Acts 4, 33 through 35. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. The promise of the early Jesus communities was that slaves were treated as nobles, and nobles as slaves, and they treated their property as God's property, free to give it away as the Spirit urged them or the need offered itself. They lived for free, and they were free to give. In 2 Corinthians 6, we'll read verses 1 through 12. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacles in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry, but as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true as unknown, and yet well-known, as dying, and behold, we live, as punished, and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. Paul is sharing in this letter a testimony of living for free and seeing past the world's distinctions as Jesus did. They were called imposters, but they were true. They were put in sorrow, but they were still rejoicing. They were impoverished, but they still made many rich. They had nothing, but they possessed everything. Paul and his fellow workers lived for free without regard to their external circumstances. Psalm 103, 8 through 11 The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. Where the Hebrews were given a bitter drink after their failure, we have been offered something sweet. When Jesus told us, drink, this is my blood, he was offering us the most tremendous gift ever offered because he chose to drink the bitter cup in our place. God is generous, and you live for free. I challenge you to meditate on God's generosity and the truly immeasurable, world-changing vastness of his gift, the grace that he gives us. You live for free. You owe no person, and God himself has declared that you owe him nothing. The illusory shackles that you still think you carry are memories of your bondage. Give them up and be free. If you fervently and faithfully thank God for his gift, you will be changed. That's the beauty of living free. Without fear of failure, we can seek to be like God. We can know him and be more like him. One of the key aspects of grace as practiced in the Bible was the difference in status between the giver and receiver. A superior, such as a king, could show grace to an inferior, such as a servant or a pauper. Remember that verse when we read the letter to Titus so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life? You're now an heir with Christ. You are in a position to give grace. Or show favor to those who have not yet become heirs. You can demonstrate to them the generosity of God and the freedom that He gives. I don't think there's any better gift that you can give to someone than to bring them the royal declaration that their debts have been abolished and their bondage has ended. Show them that they can live for free.